right. What month is it, Joel? It is June. Is it June already? Can't believe it. Hey, uh, so this is the Chariot Developer News. I don't even know what version it is. Episode number... 87. 87. Countdown to 100. That's right. For June 2nd, Monday, 2014, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And we're here to talk about all the things that we like to talk about because we're the Dev News. Um, so a lot of stuff going on. I want to start out, actually, before we even get into the regular Dev News stuff. Uh, I was at a show uh, last week, and... I have a little show report. Awesome. Yeah. So um, JSConf, as in JavaScript Conf 2014, there was a European one recently, and then this is the uh, American one. There's a husband and wife team that organized this thing, uh, and they're very well known in the community, apparently. They've been doing this for a number of years. Uh, and so JSConf uh, is all things JavaScript, clearly by the name. Uh, they talk about you know Node. They talk about client side libraries. They barely talk about Angular. Interestingly, like hmm. our, our favorite area, one of our favorite areas. Uh, and I think it's because a lot of them uh, come from the build the framework, uh, you know, engineer your own framework kind of world, or you know, uh, don't use a framework. Mm-hmm. You know, build up from small libraries as opposed to using a all encompassing framework. So it's interesting to see every generation or every group of technologies uh, go through the same evolution. You know, when we were doing Java, right, we thought we were the newest and coolest in sliced bread. So <laughs> we start out with Make, right? And we, <laughs> we evolved to Ant, and we're doing, you know, XML-based, you know, builds that were procedural. And, you know, we we checked in all our libraries, and we got away from that. You know, from the build tool perspective, we started using version control purely for the source, and we used dependency management tools. That's kind of where JavaScript is today. They've Interesting. Got, yeah, they've got a couple tools like Node Package Manager or NPM. Uh, which is kind of like building node side uh, code. You know, if you want to build a uh, a node application, a web application, or if you want to build, you know, a web app, but build it within Node with a tool like Grunt or Gulp, you use npm to install the software. Um, and then they have this thing called Bower, and Bower is like a downloading tool. It's pretty much what it is: version based downloading tool for all your client side browser components. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the there's a bunch of stuff around that space, just like there was in, I'd say, 2004, 2005. And a lot of people discussing, should you check in your source code for <laughs> your libraries? Should you actually just version them and have the downloader do it? And everyone knowing that there's no central repository like there is. There's, I mean, yeah, there's npm.org, npmjs.org, but it's not the same type of central repo. You know, There's a lot less restrictions into how to check things in. You don't necessarily have 100% guaranteed build. Um, you know, so it's kind of a little bit lawless, mm-hmm. you know. Hmm. Um, so that's going on. There's been a lot of discussion about should you use a framework or not. Feels a lot like when we were back doing, you know, should you use struts or should you write your own MVC? Remember <laughs> right, that? Right. I, I remember <clears throat> you were doing back years ago, we were doing JSPs before JSPs existed. Yeah, yeah. When WebLogic had some awful version of them that we were doing and yeah. writing our own MVC and all that fun stuff. Right. So there's all these little libraries by tons of different people out there. I was at one talk, um, and that's what a lot of the talks were. Like, you know, here's how you do this library or that library. Try this thing out. Uh, and I was at one talk who was trying to talk about, you know, what your best way of doing app development would be. And it was a se- statement that the, the person was saying, essentially, don't use any frameworks that are all-encompassing. Don't use Angular. Don't use Ember. Don't use any of those tools. If you do use a framework, use a tiny little framework that you can replace. Okay, I'm kind of on board a little bit with that concept. If you're building from scratch and you have a, a large amount of time on your side, yeah. you could put together an app that way. And then 
the more I heard the discussion, the more it came down to this, I want to build it myself. I want to make the perfect stack for what I'm using. And it, it just seems so familiar to me. It's like, yes, that's true. And I remember we used to be architecture consultants in Java EE when it first really landed. One of the first things you do is work on what? The platform, the build, the facades, all the different you know layers. And you would like slowly put those together, right? Mm -hmm. Same kind of talk here. Hmm. So, you know, it's it's one of these things where you understand and you can appreciate a framework after working with one for so long, like Spring, that it gets that all out of your way. Yeah, it seems like starting that way is, uh, there's often times when that's not the right choice, it seems like. You, you almost have to talk yourself out of why can't you use something that's already built. Right, right. I mean, and, like you said, unless you just literally have the luxury of time and money, but most people don't. Right. So that that what I think was the biggest central discussion point there. I Interesting. Mean, there was, I don't even think there was an Angular talk. If there was, it was small, um, and on Ember for that matter. There's one had a really long name. It was like all the names of them mashed together, and it was a survey of the four of them. So that was like, and I skipped that because I've seen that before. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's one of those things where they don't really focus on these other frameworks. They focus on all these little tiny things. There was a talk on Web Audio. Now I'm a musician. I didn't know Web Audio API was so cool. It's like you can, and it's built into the newer browsers as part of the HTML5 spec, but you define uh, an audio context like everything else in HTML, you build a context, right? Mm -hmm. And then you basically create an oscillator and you chain the oscillator to a filter. So you can say, I want a sawtooth wave and I want to filter it volume wise every so often bring the volume up and down or add a flange or a distortion delay interesting yeah and you can do all sorts of really so you cool build stuff. a browser effects pedal yes, you, could. you could do a browser effects pedal you could do a browser um synthesizer and hmm. there's a number of people who did this interesting that's so, pretty cool yeah it's cool and so at the end of the week the last major talk to the second to last talk of the show was this artist who is an artist also in html5 and developer and he would put together all sorts of multimedia art projects that make noise, do sound, do graphics and stuff with HTML5 only. Hmm. Coolest thing I've ever seen. I'll have to post a couple of things. So at one point, he had us all like download this little HTML5 page. And based on how you shook your phone, it made different noises. <laughs> That's kind of cool. And he would change colors in the room. It was like, it was like being at a Moby concert or something like that. <laughs> HTML5 performance art is what I do. So I got to admit, the, the, the group, it's, they had an energy to them that I really, really enjoyed. I do want to go back next year as my conference. I, I'm, I feel like it's, it's where a lot of cool things are happening. But mm -hmm. I felt so old there, man. <laughs> I really did. It is a younger group, and, and they are really, really hungry and interested. And I think a lot of good things are going to come out of it. Um, cool. So some of the things, just briefly, as I'm looking through the, my notes here, let me just, uh, pull this up. Um, uh, there was a talk on, um, let's see here. So we talked about web audio. Um, and now I'm not going to be able to find any things. Oh, there's a whole talk on speeding up your drawing in, in Canvas. Uh, and using like uh, when you would use Canvas versus using the WebGL API, which is like OpenGL, mm -hmm. you know, versus using the 3D Canvas API, um, you know, and that, there were a lot of interesting little tidbits on that. Like, for example, um, you know, be very careful about extra redraws. You know, certain things you do will cause a redraw and waste time, waste cycles. Um, so if you're writing a game, this is a really good session to be in. I don't write games, but mm -hmm. immediately on the plane, I'm like, how can I get a sprite to animate? Let me fire something, you know. Um, 
Then there was a, a talk on doing massively parallel processing with Node. Node itself is single-threaded. Mm -hmm. So you know you want to get everything to process quickly and get out of the Node's main thread, right, and do callbacks. But they were doing, you know, for example, using the cloud and having to connect with some sort of uh, – it looks like the library they were using was 0MQ. Oh, okay. And yeah. they launched a bunch of Node workers in 0MQ, and they each ate processes and fed back. Got it. So that was pretty cool. Um, along with learning about this thing called Fourism. Fourism is that you can play a number or you can play a word game with numbers. So you could say, you know, the number 13. Well, you know, how many how many uh, letters are in 13? And you say it's T H I R T E E N. It's like what seven or whatever. And how many letters are in seven? It's like either five. How many letters are in five? Four. And you always end up at four. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. So there's this website called Fourism dot is a Fourism dot com, and this, that was one of the funny things he talked about. <laughs> Um, then someone had a nice long talk about modular development with JavaScript. One of the things they're doing in JavaScript 6 is they're getting a module system that really works on the browser side. Yes, that looks good. It looks e very cool. ES6 modules. So have you heard about, yeah, have you heard about the project called, uh, oh, now I won't be able to find the name of it here. Come on. Um, I want to call it NPMJS. Uh, that sounds like it's the right one. Yeah, here it is. It's um, it's called JSPM.io. Okay. JSPM.io lets you use the ES6 module loader syntax. Mm -hmm. They give you a polyfill in the browser, and then it then uses uh, the ES6 module loader semantics. Uh, and it's a GitHub project you can install, um, and then you can do all the, the JavaScript 6 stuff. So you can use the system.import methods, and you can use an export function, mm -hmm. things like that right away, even now. The Hadle team, we were hacking with some of that with Broccoli, I believe, uh, follows some of that. So there are some, I think, implementations where it's not out yet, but they just, like you said, they follow the syntax. Right. So when it is out, you'll be able to like automatically use it. So and, and then in the browser, if you do a JSPM install, for example, let's say JSPM, it's kind of like NPM, mm -hmm. JSPM install bootstrap. Then some of these libraries have short symbol names. Things that when you do require, you just say require quote bootstrap in the browser. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost like you're dealing on the node side, which is really kind of cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, that was really neat. Um, there was someone who talked about, uh, let's see, um, immutability, you know, the, the, the age-old talk of immutability in JavaScript. Um, and and talk about even in JavaScript today, you know, if you do use an array and you add to it, you get a new array back. You know, there's there's things that happen behind the scenes that you don't know about unless you pay attention to them. Hmm. So that it's always been kind of working towards this the same kind of immutable data structure concept. You modify a string in JavaScript, it's going to be another immutable string that gets returned. So. It's interesting because you think JavaScript and you don't think immutable. The first thing that's come to my mind is not immutable. Right, exactly. It's so, incredibly malleable. Right, exactly. Well, so it feels like that. But then he started getting into some stuff where I, I started rolling off and realizing I need to function, pay attention to functional programming and tries, mm -hmm. uh, T-R-I-E-S, um, which are kind of like these, uh, these structural concepts, uh, like for tree structures. And so uh, I know Scala has tries. And so does apparently JavaScript. So mm -hmm. and you, there's a library you can get um, to do this bitmap vector try and all sorts of cool stuff. So that went way over my head. <laughs> Took a lot of notes and said, someday I'll learn this. <laughs> so that was cool. Um, you know, and otherwise it was just a really good conference. And the way it was structured was cool. First of all, if you're thinking of going to a JavaScript conference, go to this one because it's on a resort island in Florida. Nice. And it's – I had – Honestly, this is one of the regular rooms. It was in a villa. I opened the door, my sliding glass door, 
out to my balcony facing the ocean. See, these people are smart. They're really smart. <laughs> and they had parties every night for everything. They made it so that the first day was an event day for talks. The second day was a free day. And they had a bunch of activities. And the third day was another day of talks. Oh, that's really smart. I like that. I like that having the in-between day. Yes. Because, you know, the truth of it is your company is going to pay for you to go to a conference. So give you a little extra time to hack, to recover. And that's all what this was. So, for example, mm. the people who were the salespeople, they clearly set up the, the golfing tournament for them. And all of us <laughs> geeks showed up at, like, there was a Node Copters event, so we all flew a bunch of uh, AR drones. <laughs> so that's what I got. That's I, cool. I sat down with a guy from Red Hat. I want to do a shout-out to him, um, uh, Ian Hands. So Ian Hands knows our buddies Lincoln Baxter and, mm-hmm. and those guys there. And so he and I sat down, and we just we sat at the same table, and we said, let's work on a drone. So we actually made it so that the drone's camera would see the color of the ball that you had. You click on the, the video signal, he was sampling the signal, picked up the RGB color underneath the cursor, and from that point forward, he would send me left and right, like course corrections. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I put together like a, a actually Node has a, a MVC framework very similar to Rails called Sales, so I installed Sales just so I could get a quick MVC controller, yep. mm-hmm. and I had a controller that would take inputs like up, down, left, right, and then I had an autopilot, and it That's would feed. Awesome. <laughs> and he was calling this thing. It was so cool. He was calling this thing like. 20 times, 30 times, 100 times a second, depending on what it can handle. And it was doing course corrections in real time. You could you could get the drone to fly. I'd, he'd walk around the beach ball, and this thing would go, <laughs> and you could put it forward, and it would chase him around the room. It was great. Dot, dot fire, hellfire missile. Exactly. I wanted to do that. Uh, so what I came out of was, yes, great place, wonderful you know, people, uh, great Great place to visit because, I mean, Amelia Island is right next to Jacksonville. It's beautiful beaches and everything. Uh, and I want a drone. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll post in the show notes. I'll post a video for YouTube of what we did for our drone. It's pretty cool. Nice. And I'm, I'm going to put a blog post up, which I'll announce next time, which is kind of my summary of JSConf. ETE 2015. Each one comes with a drone. Ooh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so let's go to our dev news then. Um, let me see here. What should we cover first? Do you want to pick a, an article out? Sure. I'll just do uh, TrueCrypt uh, Bites the Dust. So uh, the, yeah. so TrueCrypt has been my go-to uh, encryption software. It's open source. It's very popular. You can encrypt an entire drive or you can just encrypt uh, a partition or just a file, really. You just create a giant file. You make it encrypted and it's really nice. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, and this is sort of mysterious, nobody really knows anything about who the TrueCrypt developers are. So they've been very uh, kind of secretive. And um, basically, they just posted on uh, their uh, SourceForge page that they're no longer that you shouldn't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. So they just said TrueCrypt is not secure, basically. And I think what you know what what the internet's sort of making of this, and what I think is probably true, is. Not that there's actually known vulnerabilities in it. It's just that they have decided to stop um, uh, stop actually maintaining it. And so they're saying, hey, look, it, now that we've stopped, it truly is not safe to use it because anything that comes out, we're not going to be fixing. And they claim that it's because um, now that WinXP has been deprecated Windows XP that they can, um, you know, that there's other drive encryption that's fine for all the operating systems, so TrueCrypt's no longer needed. So it'd be interesting to see. I mean, this is a kind of a big blow for a lot of people who depend on this. So it'd be interesting to see who, uh, if anyone, steps up to to maintain it. 
Wow, that's that's a major announcement, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty crazy because with all the, you know, heart bleed and all this other stuff, when I woke up and saw TrueCrypt is not secure, I'm like, no, not no. you too. <laughs> but I, I don't actually think that it's necessarily that it, that there's been any flaws in it. It's just that they've decided to uh, to step away. Someone was talking about a completely side issue, but I was reading about these new uh, potential quantum computers. Mm-hmm. With their qubits and uh, you know bits that could be in different positions at the same time, and even two bits in different locations could be uh, through a process. I forget what it's called, but they can basically m- match each other. Uh, it's something Einstein predicted, actually. Like with the t- quantum locations can be mirroring each other, like the par- like the infinite parallel universe. Yeah, kind that of thing. kind of weird yeah. thing. And if there's but in another universe, I'm really really rich. It's it's Ed's universe, whoever Ed is now. <laughs> so Ed wants his money back. But but the point being that. They say that if that actually does work and if they truly can figure out how to process things with quantum computers, that you would have like millions of times the processing speed in every encryption algorithm. (laughs) So the first person to create that will own all encryption. Yes, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone just give up. Give up now. Yeah, that's right. Oh man! Here's right. my qu- I have a quantum computer, and here's where you can send the royalty checks. <laughs> so, one of the things I found at the conference was uh, Microsoft was a sponsor, and there are a fair number of Microsoft developers who do um, Angular on the front end. And in fact, there was a talk, and I didn't attend it because I'm not a Microsoft person. But um, and I run away from Internet Explorer myself because I'm a Mac guy and a Linux guy now. But um, for customers and for the real world, they use it. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft sponsoring this event for some of their stuff, and they baked in a lot of tools. Like, for example, a lot of the tools around um, Cordova are going to be baked in and are baked into Visual Studio 2013. Nice. So that's part of it. And then they opened up IE's roadmap to show where IE is going. So it's status.modern.ie. Uh, and if you go there, you'll actually see all the different features that they have whether they're under consideration or implemented yet. So, for example, indexed DB, part of IE 10 and above. Uh, and if you span it open, you can see what they say it's, it's uh, being supported by. Uh, so really cool. If you were curious about what IE is going to support, what it has supported. And on the IE blog, they have a whole discussion around the roadmap for IE in the future. Yeah, so, this was really great because if you're doing any kind of web development, um, you know, being able to see what's – this is more transparency than I've ever seen, you know, from IE. It's a totally uh, different group, I yeah, think. It, they're really open now. It's awesome because they don't just say, like, what they support. They say what they're actually considering in the future and what they're not considering. That's right. So you could, And what's in development even. So you can say, like, you can pretty much approximate timeframes of, you know, three to six months, six to 12 or never – and uh, for all these different, um, you know, kind of web standards. And the other cool thing is they even go so far as to tell you the browsers that do support them if they don't. Yeah. And so uh, really outstanding uh, page and really insightful to see all the different things that now actually are part of a browser. So you were mentioning the ICE, the um, the ES6 modules. They have a whole thing of ES, you know, yeah, the, right. the ES things that they're planning on supporting. And so that's kind of encouraging. So uh, cool. I would not count them out at all in the uh, browser space and, and all of this because I think with their new leadership, I think they really are committed to being very open, and that could be a very good thing for the JavaScript community. So Yeah. Now let's see if they build data islands and make everything proprietary. Yeah. <laughs> but it's open. Someone else implement it. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> anyway, no, I have nothing but good things to say about them. They were very interesting this time. Uh, Google data centers making themselves more efficient? Yeah, so it's just interesting application of machine learning um, and Google's um, operations people. So so this is, I wanted to break oh, in. No the first article you brought up was from ours. This is also an ours technical article. Uh, and this is John Broadkin. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's good to 
to that's say right. what I'm actually looking at because this is radio. So, so um, everyone look at the thing they're not seeing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the electricity consumption at any kind of data center is a huge, huge cost. So, and Google obviously has tons of uh, servers, tons of electrical consumption. So, any kind of efficiency they can gain is big. And so, uh, a Google project, a Google uh, engineer. Uh, in their operations group, decided to create a side project in his 20% project that he um, created something using machine learning, using neural networks, actually, to reduce their um, con- energy consumption so it can basically, you know, change the cooling in their building and different things. Um, we'll just I'll put that. that back where I found that. <laughs> and, uh, and they wrote a white paper on how they did it. So interesting just that you can apply and it has been applied, you know, neural networks to complex problems like energy efficiency. And it didn't look like, you know, I mean, this guy's probably really smart, but it sounded like it was just one guy. It wasn't like, you know, teams of people for years. And so uh, really interesting because neural networks are an interesting part of machine learning, um, whereas other kinds of machine learning, as I understand it, you have to be more descriptive on uh, basically predicting what parts of the model are correlated together. Um, in neural networks, it's sort of more self-discovering. So you can put it at – you can Basically, you don't have to have as much intrinsic knowledge of the model that you're working with. You can kind of point it at data sets and, and discover things that you really didn't actually see the correlations between, basically. So, um, you know, very interested in using neural networks for complex problems. Well, and the more efficient they make themselves, they're at such scale that they're saving power and money and energy and yeah, great thing. And they call this guy Boy Genius, looks like. Yeah, so, may- so maybe it would actually take an army of people or a Boy Genius. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Hey, this just in, uh, since it's, it's uh, WWDC, um, we have two people there, uh, but that's not where we found our information out, because otherwise we'll never get to go again. Um, this is on Ars Technica, Ars Technica, I can't say the word, Infinite Loop, uh, since we're on the Ars kick. This, yes, we might as well call this Ars. Ars podcast. The, the um, Ars review. You're going to sue us for that. Uh, OS X Yosemite is the next version of OS X. Uh, big UI overhaul. Nice. So that's really cool. It looks like it's it got the flat UI for the start bar, uh, translucency, uh, a menu with dark mode. It's dark menus. I don't know. iOS. Oh, no. iOS typography. Okay. I switched to Linux just at the right time. Um, spotlight with its own launcher, iCloud Drive. With uh, It looks like the iCloud folder. I don't use iCloud. So, so it's going to be like a Dropbox. Uh, yeah, everything bar. Cool. All right. Looks anyway. decent. Yeah, no, interesting. Uh, hmm. You know, there was some speculation. Would Apple, is Apple, you know, this has been the thing since Steve Jobs uh, passed away. Is Apple losing its mojo? And there was right. some speculation that, you know, would they be able to do enough at WWDC to, you know, make everybody think they were still magical? I, I don't really I don't care know. Yeah. one way or the other, but I like Apple a lot. I mean, I don't think they have to, like, hit it out of the park every single time to still produce quality stuff. But... Yep, they're under a lot of pressure. They're sort of victims of their own success. That is correct. All right, moving on. Uh, we'll check back again before the end of the show. I'll have another breaking news article. <laughs> uh, let's see, Cordova being delayed. Hey, speaking of, there's that article. Yes. Uh, the Register, uh, uh, Neil McAllister at TechEd 2014, 12th of May, which apparently is their big show. I know TechEd is their big show. Uh, so at their conference in North America at Houston, Texas, where they counted down, um, they, they basically have preview tools, and uh, it's multi-device hybrid apps for Visual Studio 2013 CTP. Uh, but basically, it's based on Apache Cordova, which used to be called PhoneGap. And PhoneGap is now the you know, big project around Cordova, which is the completely open source product. 
Uh, so they have this thing called Ripple. Ripple is like a mobile browser emulator that puts all the Chrome around you and, and says, okay, here's the different resolutions you run in and turns on or off web security based on what the browsers support, you know, that kind of fun stuff. Mm -hmm. So they integrated Ripple. Uh, they interview, they integrated all the different build tools. Um, and so, and of course, it's, uh, it's for people who do .NET and things like that. Kind of a big deal, I guess, for Microsoft to integrate with Apache software. I mean, those two didn't used to play along together real nicely, you know? Yeah, that's true. It's very true. I think it's mostly also because just if, you know, you want to make sure you have the mobile web apps covered because that's just a quick way for people to get their enterprise apps online. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you get more people doing that on web, um, you know, Windows Mobile, maybe you'll have some market share. I don't know. Yeah, it's a nice boost for Apache, I think. Yeah, can't hurt. Go Cordova. Um, all right. Hey, here's another fun thing about distraction. Um, hey, Joel, what are you doing right now? Uh, surfing the web. <laughs> I'm distracting from that. Uh, so it turns out, uh, it says here, this is in uh, newyorkmag.com, Science of Us. And this is from April, but I found it was, was fun. Melissa Dahl says, uh, in, I quote her, this week's insight, even the teeniest distractions can seriously throw us off. One recent study, and she links to a study, found that interruptions as brief as 2.8 seconds were enough to more than double the number of errors study participants made on a given task. Wow. Yeah, how many times have you been interrupted in the middle of a really deep thought and you go completely blown for like a good half hour? Uh, oh, yeah, I hate that. I do. Yes. And, you know, it's like you get the guy comes up, and I, I've been guilty of this. Hey, buddy. I know. You want to go to lunch? <laughs> and that the guy's just like... It's yeah. the it's like the biggest um, reason why everybody should have an office with a door, with a door, yeah, and a lock, and, yeah, and on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it means basically it's not just a phone call that counts as an interruption, just the ringing counts. Even if all you want to do is find your phone and shut it off, said the study's lead author, Michigan State University psychologist, wow, University psychologist Eric Altman, in an email. So read that one, see what you think. I'll post the link to it at our show notes, which are at chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. Next up on our list. Uh, hey, guess what? The current patent row is, uh, row is solved. Nice. Between Apple and Google. But I heard there was another one. <laughs> I, I seriously did. Really? Between Apple and Google? I heard there was some new lawsuit firing up. Uh, but Apple and Google have agreed to dismiss lawsuits they brought against each other over technology patents. Good. This is as of bbc.com slash news. Uh, and what's the date on this? 16th of May. Uh, let's see. Apple and other firm and firms that make phones using Google's Android software filed dozens of lawsuits against one another. That's always nice. Uh, now, in California, earlier this month, Samsung won or lost rather uh, 119 million dollars uh, for infringing on two patents. Yeah, but how much did Apple pay in lawyers' fees? I mean, honestly, this has got to be costing him way more 260 than 260 billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I want to be a lawyer for the patent industry. Um, <laughs> So anyway, so that's something interesting. But I did literally hear somewhere that there was another one firing up. So if we find out about that, you'll be sure to hear it on the Dev News. Now, um, here's another cool thing. You know, we talk about peering and, you know, mm -hmm. companies having to get involved in peering. And, you know, whatever the situation is, Google is also a fiber provider in some places, right? And it has a lot of dark fiber, but it's starting to roll out real fiber in different locations. So they have um, – they've decided to talk about in a blog pub, uh, post – on the on a apparently it's a website called googlefiberblog.blogspot.com <laughs> since why not you've got blogspot put your own blog out there um, it says uh, behind the scenes of google fiber working with content providers to minimize buffering we'll we'll post the link to this 
Uh, and so they do a lot of last mile internet and they work with services like Netflix. But apparently, they do not uh, have to pay for it. You know, they basically don't do any paying deals. Uh, in the post, this is, this is a quote from the post. We, we also don't charge because it's a win-win-win situation. It's good for content providers because they can deliver really high-quality streaming video to their customers. For example, because Netflix co-located their servers along our network, their customers can access full 1080p hard, uh, high definition. And for those who own a 4K network uh, TV, Netflix and Ultra HD 4K. I want to move there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's good for us because it saves us money. It's easier to transport video traffic from a local server than it is to transport it to thousands of miles. But most importantly, we do this because it gives Fiber the fastest, fastest, most direct route to their content. Interesting. So it's an interesting take on that where they don't charge for it, but they still recognize that co-location makes a lot of sense. So right. It, it's I think it's totally a good compromise. It does mean that if you don't have whatever the money to to put your content co-located, that you're still going to suffer, right? If you're not, if you don't, uh, whatever the the requirements Maybe. are for co-location, you would have to um, participate. So it's not like saying nobody can co-locate, but I think it's sensible because um, otherwise you're basically in the name of net neutrality, making everybody kind of suffer. If you got like Netflix, well, which is using up like thirty percent of the internet's bandwidth. Yeah, so they don't charge. So what it is is they. For co-loading, co-locating, I guess that's peering, right? Yeah. For the peering, they don't charge for that at all. Right. They kind of just, just say, say like, we'll give in. you a rack or something. Right, exactly. I don't know what that exactly means. but Yeah. So interesting. So, so yeah, what do you do if you're Joe's, you know, video service? What do you do? Right. Joe yeah. owns a lot of things in this podcast. <laughs> so uh, interesting. So, yeah, and, of course, there are billions and billions of dollars of profits coming in from advertising. They can afford to do this. No, I think it makes sense. I think it's a good model. And maybe if Google becomes a bigger player in this, that'll kind of be what other people will sort of adopt that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, this is kind of interesting. Keith Gregory has a blog article out, and I saw another one, and I apologize, Charioteer. Uh, I didn't have time to pull the other one in, but I will for the next week. Um, but this is from blog.kdgregory.com. Uh, Keith is one of our consultants. Is that SSD really helping your build times? So, you know, if you're thinking of getting SSD, it's going to speed up all your development process. Looks like, and I apologize to him in advance, I, I'm not giving him the justice I should. I'm quickly flipping through the article. But he took his ThinkPad, which is a four-core Intel uh, CPU, 2.5 gigahertz, 800 mil, uh, megahertz frontside bus, um, eight gigs of RAM, eight meg L2 cache, and an Intel 320 series SSD versus a Western Digital 5400 RPM EXT4 hard drive on USB 2. Um, so he's looking at that, and then he's building a Spring app and Scala with, and also a GNU compiler app. Now, taking a look at the numbers, uh, let's see. So I better find out what the speeds are. <laughs> Each entry in the table he has contains the output from the Unix time command formatted to real user and system. Convert at all times to seconds and round to the nearest second. So basically it's the elapsed time that it took something. So on an unencrypted SSD with his spring build, it looks like the uh, real time is 273 seconds for a build. Scala was 471. And GCC was 6,355 seconds. Uh, that's a nice long one. Uh, is that seconds, really? Yeah, I guess so. Big build, huh? Uh, encrypted SSD, 303 seconds, so a little slower. USB hard drive, 304. So I would think, in all these numbers, it's they're not huge numbers. For example, an right. unencrypted SSD, 
took real time of 273 seconds, but the USB hard drive, which is on USB, it's not even on SATA, right. is 304 seconds. Yeah, where there wasn't that much of a difference. Not a big deal. Uh, and then in terms of, uh, what is that, uh, user time, no major difference, system time, no major difference. The Scala build, 471 seconds for unencrypted, 477 for the USB hard drive. I would not even care, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, GCC was 63.55, and then for USB, 64.62. So not huge differences in uh, performance. And I'm kind of surprised, actually, if he's doing that with an SSD, what would it be like with a regular, let's say, 7200 RPM hard disk in there instead of being on USB being as an actual SATA drive or something like that. Yeah, and he, he says why. He thinks that, like, you know, mostly the compiler is doing uh, work with data and memory, and probably. so it's really not reading and writing a ton. There's probably other kind of workloads where you would see a huge, you know, much larger difference. Anecdotally, I see a large difference with uh, with an SSD. Launching um, apps. And your operating system and yeah. that sort of thing. It's just zippier, but in terms of builds, probably not that big of a difference. Yeah, interesting. So thank you. Keith is very scientific with his research, so you, you'll enjoy this if you're you know, looking to optimize your machines and you're thinking of an SSD. Here's one thing it might not be all that much faster for. All right. So if you're building the world, build it somewhere else. Um, <laughs> Get off my lawn. Here's, yeah, <laughs> you kids. Here's a cool one. I love this. You know, um, cars, Toy Story, Ratatouille, what do they all have in common? They're really cool looking. They're really cool looking, and they're built by Pixar. Oh, so right. Pixar developed their own software to do all this stuff years and years ago called RenderMan. Mm. And you could buy it for 500 bucks a workstation. You always could. Um, I don't know about always, but for a long time you, you were able to. But they just released an open source version for non-commercial use. So if you want to play around with RenderMan and get it to do stuff, you can make your own movie. Wow. You just have to sign up, and I'm, my activation code is sitting there waiting for me, and I cannot draw to save my life. <laughs> so I don't know why I did this. But <laughs> That's cool. You can have one square hit another square and go, <laughs> I made Pong with I Renderman. Made... <laughs> um, so you, have to just, you don't have to pay anything. You can download it. You just can't you know, sell your creations. That's cool. Uh, but Renderman. So that's at mobile.geek.com and uh, on 31st of May. Uh, and so this is super, super cool. And it's version 19 of RenderMan. Now, don't put it on a small laptop. I wouldn't put it on a Chromebook. <laughs> It'll burn a hole right through the processor and China syndrome the whole thing. <laughs> but if you've got a nice, fast machine, you want to see what you can do, play with RenderMan. Nice. Neat stuff, huh? I bet your SSD would help with that. Yes. Oh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, many machines in a stack would help with that. <laughs> Rack middleware for blocking and throttling. Let's talk rack, Mr. Rails. Yeah, rack attacks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is something that uh, Justin, lead developer from uh, Hato, he found uh, very cool. So imagine you have a website and a product called something, I don't know, let's just say called Hato. And, uh, <laughs> no, don't, don't call it Hato. <laughs> and um, you, uh, you know, it also has a REST API, or even if it doesn't have a REST API, it is, uh, you know, th something that customers can use or people can use and um, abuse if they, you know, maybe accidentally run a script against it or something like that. So basically you would, uh, the, the rack attack is a way to, it's Ruby on Rails. Well, it's actually not Ruby on Rails. It's rack, which is not Rails. So Ra rack is the middleware, which is, if you're from the Java land, it's very much like Java servlet filters. Right. It sits in front of your application. And so it, it's, it's, um, Rails is rack enabled if you don't turn it off basically, right? Yes. It's kind of built in. So rack is like the lower level abstraction. And, um, 
so this cool thing about this is you can use it for throttling. So you can throttle, you could say individual IP addresses can only get so much, you know, uh, basically can't abuse your site. You can also use it for blocking. So it has an implementation of inspired by fail to ban. I don't know if you've ever seen fail to ban. I use it. Fail to ban is great. It's and, required. And this yes, <laughs> keeps the script kiddies from beating down their site. For the most part. And, yeah. um, and, and Rack Attack has an implementation of that as well. So really cool and, um, you know, almost something that every public website or website that has any kind of public-facing, you know, um, REST API, or in our case with, with Hado, it's not even public-facing. It's still private to our customers, but they can run a script and abuse the REST API and these sorts of things. Uh, and so with Rack Attack, you can just throttle all that. Very nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's open source uh, from Kickstarter. GitHub.com slash Kickstarter slash Rash. rash. Ra- you know, I've been attacking rash, rash for a while now. Yes. Rack-attack, yes. Yeah. And I have a bunch of people I would really like to throttle this work with that, too. Yeah, yeah, that would, uh, <laughs> when I say that out loud, it's yes. time, time to shut this down. Uh, and, one more. And the other one is Renito, as I think how you say it, Renito.com. Yeah, Again, man. also from Justin. But this is a Markdown-powered knowledge base for Node.js. So imagine you have a bunch of narc, yeah, Markdown. Narkdown. Narkdown. Uh, files. Where do you live? And <laughs> it's a flat file CMS. So basically, oh. rather than having a bunch of, uh, you know, Basically, the the thing with WordPress is it puts all your content in a database. That's uh, kind of a bad design decision on their part. I mean, we use WordPress for stuff. But uh, (laughs) it makes it slow as dirt is the bottom line. And it's kind of painful to use. Flat file CMS, you check everything into GitHub. You can, you know, much easier. If it's Markdown, it's very easy to human readable. And so, you know, why is that important? Well, I like a a flat file CMS called Statomic, which we use uh, for Hadle. This is Satomic is commercial, although it's very reasonable. But this is, and it's PHP based. This is Node.js based, which is very cool, and it's open source. It's important that you have a good way to uh, be able to create content. And this isn't just like, you know, I want to create a blog. For Hadle, we use it for requirements because requirements are really important. And how do we describe the story of what the product actually does? And if it's not, if it's hard to manage or if it's in some kind of giant, thousand-page Word document or something that's awful. That really impedes your work. But imagine if you can version the requirements at the same time you version the code. Think of how wild it is to say when we do a build, we write a, we create a tag that tags the code and it tags the requirements, and that's it. That's all, like, together now permanently, um, you know, linked and archived in the history of our version control system. Sweet. So being able to version requirements as files along with your code is a big win. I think it make, just makes development and requirements more in sync where often those two worlds are, you know, kind of at odds. So, and, and basically Renito or however you say it, um, I think, you know, could help support that. Very cool. Hey, more breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking here. Uh, it looks like we've got, uh, uh, I don't know if this is a new iPhone that they're talking about. I probably should look, um, as I'm digging along here, but they're talking about, uh, some new APIs. Um, See here, come on, get to that point. Looks like a new bezel, so it must be a new phone. Yeah, maybe. Come on, new keyboards, so you can do swipe for mm-hmm. input on an iPhone keyboard. I went to Android. You guys took too long, um, <laughs> <laughs> and not all of us did. Note to self. Um, yeah, they're talking about I guess iOS eight here. That's what they're talking about. Um, so, yes, iOS 8 has been announced, and we will have to have a discussion about that on the next Dev News. But for now, 
Uh, I have to go, and so does Joel. So that is our Dev News 87, you had said, my sir? Yes. All right, 87 it is. So that is for uh, Monday, June 2nd, 2014. If you would like to subscribe to the Dev News and you found us randomly, go to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews and subscribe or go on iTunes and search for it. And I'll always say this. I keep forgetting to put us in the Play Store, but I will do so at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, that's it. So for feedback, tweet it at, at TechCast or I'm at K Rimple and you're JP, what are you? Jake and Fino. At Jake and Fino on Twitter. Uh, or you can email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. And so for the Dev News, I am Ken Joel, Rimple. Joel Confino. <laughs> Wait a minute. We have to talk about that for a second. That's how dumb I am today. This is what going to the island for a week does to you. <laughs> no problem, man. I am, and I pointed to you, and you said Joel. <laughs> uh, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And next week, I'll know who I am. <laughs>